I wrapped the previous episode by suggesting that Russia went into Ukraine unprepared but provoked. The Ukrainians put up a good fight, but were hapless bystanders by not balancing the US and Russia for their own country. That was the failure of Ukrainian leadership, and that failure was epic. And of course, the collective West, who wanted a war in Ukraine to cause the disintegration of Russia, they got their war. To reiterate again from the previous episode, Russia in 2022 was faced with a choice, as it was faced with in 2014. Fight NATO in Russia, also known as civil war or regime change, or fight NATO in another theater, in this case, Ukraine. Let's start with something that was widely heard across the world. On the 27th of Feb, 2022, just a few days after the invasion of Ukraine, U.S. pro-establishment broadcaster, one called CBS, and its reporter, chap called Charlie DeGusta, said this about Ukraine. And I'm air-quoting. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it is going to happen. This isn't Iraq or Afghanistan. End air-quote. He wasn't the only one, to be fair to him. Reporters from British state broadcaster BBC said something similar. A guy called David, and I'm getting this wrong, David Shraveldalze, explained while being emotional that he was seeing, and I air quote, European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed every day, end air quote. Well, when the liberal US establishment and the UK state broadcaster tell you for once the God-honest truth, the two main countries that had rocked the Middle East and invaded Iraq, then the world listened. I cannot underline to you how important these statements were. This was, to many people in Africa, Latin America, Asia, Russia, and the Arab world, the last straw, and finally, in plain, literal, black and white terms, an announcement that, well, that the liberal, BLM-loving, anti-racist, pro-environment, lecturing, liberal elite were actually always the racists after all. So it's okay to bomb an Afghan family in 2021 by Biden, but not a Ukrainian one by Putin in 2022, just a few months later. The liberal fundamentalists were also racists. Who would have known? Let me explain to you how the world saw this. If I'm Sri Lankan and my economy is going down the toilet, why should I be crashing my life because of some faraway conflict in Europe on the eastern borders of Russia? I don't have beef with Ukraine or Russia, but I do care about the economic mess in Sri Lanka. Oh, and no, Europe does not matter to me. I, as that hypothetical Sri Lankan, don't have to care about Europe because it's irrelevant to my situation. Why should I, a poor Sri Lankan, go hungry so, and I air quote, Putin must fall, end air quote. What Eurocentric nonsense. This is important context that you need to keep in the back of your mind as this conflict unfolds. Just because the collective West hates Russia doesn't mean Everyone hates Russia. On the contrary, in many countries, Russia and Putin are seen in a neutral or positive light, if nothing else, as a trade partner for food, fertilizer, and energy. Most of the countries with a positive view of Russia have been over not just the last 100 years, but over the last 300 years, been screwed over by the collective West in one form or another. 
this episode is not a battlefield analysis. There are some things I do want to mention, and it's lessons learned from the actual battle in 2022, which has geostrategic implications and lessons learned, but it's not a battlefield analysis of any form. In total, I've got about 10 points that I want to make here. The first one is that Russia originally invaded with not enough men. You need about 500,000 to invade and occupy a country like Ukraine. I think not conjuring up at least 500,000 troops was a mistake. Ukraine had 500,000 troops and they had full mobility. So Russia was fighting with less troops and with no mobility. The lesson learned here is that people have to throw into a situation like this, trained and ready to rumble troops and especially be prepared for long wars of attrition. Secondly, if you go into a war or do anything like that, the generals need a free ride and given everything they need, like how the US did to what they did to Afghanistan and Iraq. In other words, massive shock and awe. Lesson learned. If you go into battle, you need to destroy first and ask questions much, much later. Number three, the goal for Russia's general should have been clear, secure water to Crimea and give Crimea a land buffer by taking Kherson, absorb Donbass and create a land bridge between Donbass and Kherson. That should have been the war goal, at least that's what I reckon. None of this denazification nonsense and the other fluffy words that was thrown about at the time. So lesson learned, clear military objectives. Number four, the distractions in the north upon invasion around Kiev and Kharkiv and the withdrawals from them, although they were strategically good decisions in 2022, was bad for propaganda purposes. Lesson, clear military objectives with backup plans needed. Number five, wars, an observation I have here, have moved on from asymmetric, so a David versus Goliath situation, such as the US versus Iraq, to something akin of a war of equals. Meaning, to say if the US decided to take on, say, India or China today, the US will actually find it hard to impossible to win. Because small countries or lesser power countries can actually take you on pretty well. Lesson, small countries can pack a punch if supported by a superpower enemy. Remember that. You need allies. Number six, drones are a way to win battle. Lesson, drones will win wars. Keep them cheap, not expensive. Seven, propaganda only works for some of the time. This applies to all sides, by the way. So lesson for that, some propaganda is good, else stay very, very quiet. Number eight, wars these days should be assumed to be endless or nuanced. Lesson, Prep for a slow, long slog. Number nine, never underestimate the enemy on any side. So lesson here is obviously always overestimate your enemy. And finally, number 10, NATO is a war machine, not a peace machine. Lesson, trust no one. Those are my very rough high level 2022 observations of course, things will change on the battlefield and more, and 2023 will be completely different. In fact, 2023 by Feb will be different from December 2022. I'm not doing a battlefield report. 
If you are listening to this in Feb of 2023 or sometime during 2023 and want battlefield analysis, check out the Duran and the new Atlas channels on Rockfin, YouTube and Telegram. Absolutely spot on daily analysis. I want to introduce you for a second here to a book. This book is called The Falsehood in Wartime. It's a little known book and it was written by a British Labour politician called Arthur Ponsby. He was writing actually about World War I, then known as the Great War. It was the first war that was a total war. The subtitle was Containing an Assortment of Lies Circulated Throughout the Nations During the Great War, and it was written in 1928. Now, after the Second World War, a new edition of the book was given the updated title Falsehoods in Wartime Propaganda, Lies of the First World War, so just a minor change there from Great War to First World War. This book, Falsehood in Wartime, identified the role of propaganda that was played in World War I. In general and specific terms, in short, he listed and refuted pieces of propaganda used by the Allied forces, so Russia, France, Britain, and the United States, against the central powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, and Bulgaria. For example, in detail, Ponsonby analyzes the case of the invasion of Belgium as a cause for the war, the claim of Germany's sole so-called responsibility, the myth of a nurse mutilated by German soldiers, the depiction of the German emperor as a criminal, the case of a Belgian baby whose hands were cut off, the Louvre altarpiece which had allegedly been destroyed by the Germans, the crucified Canadian soldier, the German corpse factory, the German U-boat outrage, among many other issues that were raised during the war on Allied side. Anne Morelli categorized the essential propaganda techniques of Ponsonby's work in her book in 2001. Morelli explains how these principles not only worked during the First World War, but were applied to wars into 2001 and, in my view, way beyond, including the 2022 war in Ukraine. And it was used by both the United States and Russia because it seems like it's a natural human tendency. So I'm going to list 10 here. Number one, we do not want war. Number two, the opposite party, they, are alone guilty of war. Number three, the enemy is inherently evil and resembles the devil. Number four, we defend a noble, noble cause, not our own interest, just a noble cause. Number five, the enemy commits bad things on purpose. Our mishaps or bad things are involuntary. The enemy uses forbidden weapons. We suffer small losses. Those of the enemy are just enormous. Number eight, recognized artists and intellectuals back only our cause. Number nine, our cause is sacred. And finally, all who doubt our propaganda are traitors. These are really important points. I love these points. Because in the heat of war, all sides, the US side, the Ukrainian side, the Russian side, all engaged in this kind of propaganda. Not because they're all crazy hypocrites. They, of course, are insane hyper-hypocrites. But it's, as I said, a part and parcel of the human condition. All countries do it. We all do it. So do your governments. Every time you are faced with a warlike situation, just accept you are a propaganda product, including that war in Ukraine. In this conflict, if you are in the West, 
you see pro-Ukraine and anti-Russia propaganda. If you are in Russia, you see pro-Russia and anti-West propaganda. If you are in an independent third-party country, then you go sure to watch your sources because Russian media outlet will be pro-Russia and a Western one will be pro-Ukraine. If your local media is pulling from Reuters or Associated Press, then it's basically Western propaganda. They're not free and fair when it comes to war. With all that context and the whole previous episode on the origins of the conflict in Ukraine, what then are the main outcomes of this conflict from a geopolitical and world affairs perspective? So let's start. Let's start with the losers. The top loser, of course, is Ukraine, having lost 20% of its territory. A civil war that turned into an invasion with millions pushed out of their homes, infrastructure destroyed, and all those soldiers dead. The second biggest loser is Europe. The end of cheap gas and oil from Russia after the other NATO allies fundamentally blew up Nord Stream 1 and 2 is the primary reason. Germany is essentially deindustrializing as we speak. Lots of domestic strife due to a cost of living crisis and overt demonstration of loss of sovereignty because the US actually calls the shots. So if there are these two losers, who are the winners and who are winning at the expense of the loser? Well, number one is Russia, who gained four new oblasts, plus secured Crimea and Black Sea access. There's, of course, a cost to this, but it tells the Westerners that the red line was crossed and this will repeat elsewhere if needed. So it's definitely a victory for them. Plus, their economy is doing really well. Two, the U.S., who now get to sell their natural gas to Europe at higher prices, and they see many European industries relocate to American locations. The U.S. enforced its hegemony over its NATO Five Eyes, G7, and EU vassal states more fully than it was able to do previously. But the real winners were none of those parties. There are two big winners. The real winners, well, at least so far, have been China and India. Secondary winners are Saudi, Iran, South Africa, Iraq, Mexico, Brazil, Indonesia. Well, honestly, anyone not involved in the conflict, but in what was the third world. This forced, this war forced the US to focus on Europe, forcing the Europeans to cut Russia out in terms of trade benefited the global South countries, i.e. the third world like no other time in colonial or neo-colonial times. For the first time in a long time, people in countries like India or Brazil were able to stand up to Western Eurocentric liberal fundamentalism. Instead of sanctioning Russia, they moved to make the best of this small Eastern European skirmish, and it moved well for them. There's one overriding theme, and if I had to put a headline to it, it would be this. Global South realizes that the global North isn't as important as it once used to be. Let me repeat. The third world realizes that the first world isn't important anymore. When the Western countries were calling for the overthrow of Putin and massive sanctions against Russia, a vote went to the UN Security Council to condemn Russia. By chance, rotating members at the time were the UAE and India. Interestingly, both abstained. That was the for the Global South generally. 
This was a shock to the collective West, who thought everyone, especially democracies like India, would vote with them. Everyone noted the neutrality or the overt pro-Russia stance of India and the UAE. Though this war was an awful experience for Ukrainians, the Emiratis, the Indians, the South Africans, Brazilians, Chinese, realized that it was a problem over there, and there were many benefits to be had over here during 2022, as the US refocused back to their old stomping ground, Europe. Ultimately, for these global South countries, Ukraine was no different to, say, South Sudan. It was, after all, just another civil war that went bad, and indeed, in the context of wars generally, say Iraq, Ukraine was actually less brutal. I want to pause here and remind you what I said top of this podcast. I highlighted how the Western liberal media establishment were reporting the suffering of blue-eyed, blonde-haired people in Europe versus Africa, Asia, or Latin America. This is critical context to understand the reactions of so many people. Western liberals, Western liberals believe in the Black Lives Matter movement for them, but not for everyone else. It was time for everyone else to call a spade a spade and move on. It's almost like magic, cheap energy that Russia sent Europe to fuel Europe's development and industry stopped flowing and instead started flowing to China and India. Help these countries control their inflation, their food supplies kept coming in and it came in from Russia. In the long term, especially for China, it secured endless food, endless fertilizer and endless energy for just about forever. And one more thing. What do you really need if you're at war with someone? You need energy, metals, food, fertilizer. And that's what Russia was providing. And there's a land border. So there was no risk of it being stopped in a wartime situation. These self-harming Western sanctions meant that India was ultimately selling refined Russian oil back to Europe. Russia continued its exports of energy, food, fertilizer, and arms. In a nanosecond, the idea that Russia was nothing but a gas station was blown out of the water. Russia, in the end, turned out to be a critical trade partner for most everyone. Russia was selling energy and food. Europe was selling Volkswagens and IKEA. Countries like the UAE and India were forced to walk a fine line between their good relations with the West on one side and Russia on the other. It was the dance of diplomacy that these countries needed to pull off, and during 2022, they pulled it off. While sending out neutral or anti-war statements, the real actions of various countries was essentially pro-self-interest. That meant continued trading with Russia. In the last year or so, pretty much throughout 2022 after the war in Ukraine started, I have noticed developments that I want to highlight. Number one, India and the UAE began trading in their own national currencies. Second, China and Saudi really close. In fact, Xi Jinping visited MBS over in Saudi Arabia. There's talk of a petro yuan sort of deal. Three, Russia and China are in a very tight relationship. And lastly, more trade is happening without Western influence. Maybe it's through BRICS, maybe it's through the SCO. But the reality is, 
there's now a whole world that excludes Western trade system. In short, the world has slowly started to move away from Western standards of trade, most notably, slowly though, but most notably, away from the US dollar. While Ukraine burned, Europe drowned. Many in the third world did just fine. In a matter of weeks, the house of cards that was the Eurocentric view of the world looked like could collapse. During 2022, the Western sanctions kept coming and kept hitting Russia, including its central banks, its private citizens, its industries, but nothing happened to the Russian economy. Someone in NATO high command learned too late that commodities are important, and though Netflix may be a great brand, having that brand in Russia is not important. India ultimately still needs oil at the cheap, and Egypt still needs grain at the cheap. The important and not-to-be-overlooked removal of the country of Russia from Western-owned infrastructure, be it SWIFT, the banking system, MasterCard, Amex, Visa, and so on, all of that, and also when the EU and US started confiscating all Russian assets, including private citizens, its central bank, everything, suddenly became fair game for Western sanctions. And it, by the way, it was only the West imposing sanctions. No one else was playing along with the West. In effect, of course, the West were sanctioning themselves, but more critically for the other countries out there, they read two things out of these Western sanctions. Number one, that it, the Western sanctions, could and likely would, that's important, would happen to them as they so continue to grow because they need to then be prepared for when the Western sanctions happen to them. That includes countries like India, China, Saudi Arabia, everyone. Second, Russia was well prepared and had significantly decoupled their economy from the West enough to survive and thrive in an environment where the West had sanctioned them. Some hybrid model of that is worth looking into for other countries. Even Russian leadership was surprised how well they survived. So this is all de-Westernization. De-Westernization, thus, all of these countries has to be given priority if you are to remain a growing country. You want to look after your people and your economy and to retain your sovereignty. As I said, even India, who is a traditional ally of Western countries, who has beef with China and has become more active in organizations that the West wants, such as the Quad, has to take these steps because you cannot trust Western economic models. I, of course, do not know what the future holds and how the battlefield events in Ukraine will shape up. But if 2022's geopolitical trends continue beyond 2022, beyond 2023, beyond 2024, then the Eurocentric view of the world will keep declining. Power clearly has shifted elsewhere in 2023. It's very clear right now. But because legacy Western institutions like, say, Google, Apple, the IMF, the World Bank, or Goldman Sachs, still dominate, it does not feel like the influence has declined. Believe me, in real terms, it absolutely has. No one, no one wants the West to go away. Most people simply don't want to be lectured by liberal fundamentalists on things like gender theory, climate change, and freedom. What Delhi, Dubai, and Durban agree on is if it works for you, good. If it does not work for us, then just leave us alone. Times have shifted. 
1993, Brazil had to go through Western banks and institutions. Decades later, in 2023, Brazil can bypass the entire West, and it does. This is something the more enlightened Western politicians will learn very slowly from 2023 and beyond. Now look, anything is possible. A massive black swan event, an earthquake, a volcano, or whatever could rock Saudi, the UAE, India, Turkey, Egypt, China, Russia, or Brazil to such a degree that Western Eurocentrism comes right back. Anything is possible. And of course, not all European and Western countries are built equally. India sees its relations, say for example, with France, Japan, Australia, and the US as critical, very critical, more so than its relations with, say, Canada or Latvia. So everyone will have to pick and choose who and how they do business with the West and within the West. There is another problem too, and this is a big problem for the US. Now, imagine you have a puppy. You care for it and nurture it for five years and then let the dog out to the wild and fend for itself. Survival chances for that dog are slim in the real world. And that same holds true for you and me, us humans. The same also holds true for countries. The US is a real country, but its allies are puppies because it made them puppies, like the EU, the G7, NATO, Five Eyes, and South Korea. These countries could not fight without the US. They are too domesticated and more concerned with hocus-pocus like climate change or human rights than actually fighting wars, which is the real world. Again, I cannot predict the future, but countries need to diversify trade partners, trade with one another in multiple currencies, and hold gold with the goal of not being a slave to anyone, be it the West, be it China, be it India, or even Russia. Smart countries will play off bigger players against one another for their own benefits. Smaller countries need to figure this out. And thanks to 2022, and thanks to Ukraine's epic leadership failure in 2022, every country on the planet needs to wake up. There is a word for it, and I did a whole episode on this topic a while ago. Go check it out. I don't remember what episode number it is. But the word for the future and what all these trends tell us is multipolarity. Multipolarity. 